If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms, to the 57th Psalm. I'm sure that to the person who is not a Christian, it becomes a wearying thing to hear Christians talk about their continual surprise at what they find in the Word of God. And yet to those of us who are Christians and who find our nurture and our strength there, that's one of the things with which we live daily, and it's one of the perpetual surprises. I never cease to be amazed at what I find unexpectedly there. For a long time, I've been intrigued by a text in the Old Testament. But somewhere in my mind, I got to the place where I felt guilty about using a text if I never understood the context. And so every time I've started to use this text, I really have backed away from it, or if I've used it, I haven't done it with a great deal of conviction because I had difficulty really relating it to the context. In fact, it's a magnificent verse, and the context is so miserable. And how do you talk about a magnificent subject when the person who gave you that magnificent text was really bemoaning his situation? The psalmist was in trouble. He was in trouble enough that you will find that he speaks about his situation as being one beset by calamities. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. He was living in the midst of calamities. His The people that were around him were not particularly friendly. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. The people that were around him were reproaching him, and he says, they are about to swallow me up, and if you don't help me, Lord, they will. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. He says, my life, my soul is among lions, and I lie down even among them that are set on fire. The people that are about me are like a consuming blaze that would devour me. He says, their teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. He says, be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. But then let me remember again those people that are out there. When I think about you, I get a little encouragement, but the problem is those people out there. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. But that's his conclusion after it's over with. And as long as they were raging out there, he was aware the pit was intended for him. Now, here is a man who is living in circumstances where everything has gone wrong. How do you win when everything goes wrong? How do you stay peaceful when everything about you is in turmoil and in distress and in calamity? What do you do when disaster comes? Now, here is a psalm that lets us know, I think, something about how we win when things do go wrong. Because the striking thing is that this psalm has in it some of the greatest notes of peace and and, uh, uh, 
confidence that you can find anywhere in the psalmody. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto to me, for my soul trusteth in thee. While all chaos is breaking around him, he is in a state of trust. In the shadow of your wings, he says, I will make my refuge. I will hide myself under the shadow of your wings. Now, he says, my heart is fixed, or my heart is resolute, my heart is established. It could be translated in a number of ways. But he says, while everything is commotion around me, there is one thing that is established, that's fixed, that isn't budging. Now, it's nice when, the thing, when everything's moving to have something inside you that doesn't move. So he says, while everything around me is moving, my heart is fixed. My heart is fixed. And because there is something within me that isn't moving, it's fixed, it's settled. I will sing and give praise. The pit is dug. There are lines about me. Their teeth are like spears and arrows. Their tongue is like a sharpened sword. A net is set for my steps, the trap is set, the, the trigger is sprung, and here I am, but he says, I will sing and give praise. He says, awake up, my glory. Awake, psalter and harp. Wake the piano up and get the organ around. I myself will awake. The interesting thing is that the Hebrew text actually says, I will wake up the dawn. Now, the King James says, I, will awake, I, I myself will awake early. There is no myself in the Hebrew. There is a clear eye, and it says, I will arouse the dawn. Isn't it interesting when you want to get the, to, to push the sun up so you can sing a little more? Now, deliverance has come, hasn't it? <laughs> How many mornings do you want to push the sun up so you can get at your quiet time? Uh, this is the state to which he had come. I will awaken the dawn, Shachar. I will praise thee, O God, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Now, the beautiful thing to me is that when I started simply saying that verse, my heart is fixed, O God. That's a great text. And there is no, when a man's heart is fixed, he can sing. When a man's heart is established, he is filled with security. Now, when I, when I began to look at that and then look at its context, the context seems so contradictory, but of course the context is the thing that makes that passage so magnificent. When everything is wrong, then here is a man who can sing and who can give praise, who can glorify God and rejoice in him and exalt his name above the heavens because he has found security and establishment with a fixed heart. Now, one of the intriguing things about the psalm that doesn't give you any full answer, but it certainly sets your, your mind at work and your imagination running is, that the title to the psalm says that the psalm was written by David and it was written while he was hidden in a cave hiding from Saul. You remember the day when Saul hated David because he knew that David was really supposed to be the king? He who had had the anointing of God had now lost God's spirit, the 
Spirit of God had departed from him. That same Spirit that had come upon him when he was anointed to be king over Israel now had come upon David as David was anointed by Samuel and the Spirit of God came upon him and that's what made him royal. That's what made him a king, whether he was in a cave or not. Or not. Now, the beautiful thing is, if you belong to God, you're a king, whether you're in a cave or wearing a crown. It doesn't matter. David now is in the cave, but he's more the king than the one is who has the crown. You will remember that if this is true, and if it comes from 1 Samuel 24, it comes from a context where Saul had taken 3,000 of his cracked troops and there are some scholars, Benjamin Mazar says that the reference here, my soul is, a, my, is among lions. I lie among those that are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Benjamin Lazar, the Israeli uh, archaeologist, found some spearheads that had on them sons of the lion. And... Uh, he felt that these were really the spearheads of Saul's soldiers, his crack troops. And Benjamin Lazar says that they call themselves the sons of lions, and so in this context, this psalm was written, and David is talking really about uh, Saul's crack troops that are out to destroy him. 3,000 men seeking him in the wilderness. And he's hidden in the cave. Now in that passage in... Uh, 1 Samuel 24, you will remember that Samuel came in the very cave where David was, was sleeping. Now, the ironical thing is, and we're a family, so we can talk about some of these things. I would hesitate on Sunday morning. But the ironical thing is, he probably went into the cave for bathroom purposes. And here is David, who has caught the king in about his unregal a context as you could get. And he is delivered into David's hand. It doesn't take any more than that to uh, give you some of the irony of the situation, does it? But now remember, that's the end of the story, not the beginning. The beginning is David hears 3,000 troops around the cave and he's in it. He's caught. How much more hopeless can your situation be than that? There is no exit to the cave. Somebody said to me, the thing wrong with your office, Dr. Kenlaw, is that there's no back door. You can't get out. Well, David was in one where there was no back door. There's no way to get out. 3,000 troops out there come to kill him, every one of them commissioned to slaughter him and ready. And in that context, he says, calamities, yes. I'm about to be swallowed up. I am among lions whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongue is a sharp sword. They have the net set. It is around me. The pit is before me. But he says, my heart is fixed, and I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. How do you do that? I think there's some things that make it possible for David to do this, or the person in that context. One, he knew God. What a difference it makes. <laughs> doesn't matter how closed the cave is. God is the one who created the universe, and he's opened up caves before, hasn't he? 
And if it takes an earthquake to open a prison, the God whom he worships is the creator. So he knows God. But it isn't the fact that he knows that God is the creator. It is the fact that he knows him in a personal relationship of forgiveness. And you know your heart will never be established and you will never be secure if there is not a consciousness of forgiveness inside you. I cannot overlabor that. There is no security for the person who is conscious that he has sinned against God and that sin is not forgiven. I know this from all personal relations. That's the reason that a husband should never go to sleep at night with anything between him and his wife or a wife with anything between her and her husband or roommate or friend. Because you see, there is something subversive that destroys the relationship if there's anything morally, ethically, personally wrong between two people. It's amazing how secure a man is when he can look at the world and say, he's forgiven me. He's my friend. I'm on right relations with him. Let me urge you, no matter what else you do, live in a place where you know perpetually the consciousness of forgiveness of sin. That's the reason there's so many verses in the Bible that are priceless, like if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the reason for these priceless parables like are passages from Jesus, like the one about uh, where he turns to his disciples and they're, talk they're talking about somebody who forgave, uh, you know, seven times. The question was raised, should you forgive that many? He says, forgive seven times seven, forgive 70 times seven. He's exploding the end out of that cave. You see. I'm glad it's possible for the end of that cave to ex be exploded out. Live where your sins are forgiven and there's a consciousness inside you that through the blood of Christ, you're right. You see, then you can call on him and lay claim to him. And if you feel that you've let him down and it's unforgiven, you're going to have trouble believing. First step toward faith and confidence is a consciousness of forgiveness. Now, David had something else that at first blush you will say, well, that's not available for me, but wait a minute. I think it is. That to me is the part of the magnificence of the story. You will remember that he had a sense of special destiny that came through the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. Samuel came to him and checked off all of his brothers and said, no, they're not the right ones. And Jesse, his father, said, yes, but they're the older. They're the important ones. And he said, no, they're not the right ones. Do you have yet another son? He said, yeah, I've got a, a kid out here. Ruddy-faced boy with the, with the animal. Well, he said, send for him. And when he came, Samuel looked and said, this is the guy we want. This is the one whom God has chosen. He took the oil, poured it on his head, anointed him, and the Spirit of God came upon David. And the Spirit of God came upon him to make a king out of him. Now, I'm sure that while he's sitting in that cave, there are 3,000 soldiers around him. And now Saul, with his personal bodyguard, is coming into the cave, and he does not know, but that they know he's there and they're coming to kill him. 
What's David thinking? He's saying, wait a minute, Lord, what was Samuel doing in my house? <laughs> you don't mean that Samuel anointed me to bring me to this. I've never done yet what I was anointed to do. My work isn't finished. How can I doubt now? I'm sure he had the same struggles with doubt and unbelief that you have. He was as human as you are. He was as much a doubter and unbeliever as I am. But I'm sure the Spirit of God was saying, you remember? Now, you know, I believe that every person needs to have the baptism or the anointing of God's Spirit upon him. I believe there's a place in every man's life for a personal Pentecost where he can be sure that God's Spirit has endued him the same way that David was endued. You know, we use this word sanctify. At its basic minimum, it means to set apart. And we relate entire sanctification to the baptism of the Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Ghost, where the Spirit comes upon a man and possesses him and sets him apart to Christ. And he's not his own anymore. He's Christ. And the greatest basis for security that you can ever get is that he has taken me to be his own and he is going to finish his purposes with me. Don't live without that consciousness of the anointing. Prayer meeting last night in the Methodist church. Dr. Siemens had us sing that old song, Fill Me Now, Offer O'er Me, Holy Spirit. Bathe my trembling heart and breath. When we got through singing it, old Dr. Siemens, you know, stood up, food for my soul, refreshment for my spirit, said wonderful words, fill me now. Great theology. Fill. I need all I can get. Fill me, Lord. Fill me to fullness and to running over. Fill me. Lord, not the other guy, me. Oh, it's all right about the other guy. Fill him too, but be sure you fill me. <laughs> he may need it, but I of all I need to be filled. So fill me. And then he said, now, today's the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Today, now, at this present moment, fill me now. You're going to have a hard time telling me that a man under the anointing, the present anointing of the Holy Spirit is going to have a sense of despair and failure. The cave's going to open up. I noticed that Jesus found this necessary, or God his Father, so that before he began his public ministry and before he began his conflict with the enemy, he waited and the Spirit came and anointed him. And if it was necessary for Jesus, how much more necessary it is for the likes of you and me. The pattern is set there. Just as he was baptized with water, he was endued by the Holy Spirit in the rest of his life. He said, the power that works within me is the power of the Spirit. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then the kingdom has come to you. That's my present privilege. His gift for me to receive. Okay. Now, I have a sense that David was the kind of person who daily kept his sense of direction. Now, uh, you go through the Psalms and you will find again and again little notes like, Early will I seek thee, O Lord. 
Three times a day have I sought thy face. But there is no question but that this guy was a man of prayer, and you will have no security if you do not pray and if you do not live in the Word. There is something about prayer, the presence of Christ. A few moments in the presence of Christ will give you a clearness of head and a clearness of heart and a security of spirit that nothing else will give. The rest of life is made to fray and frazzle you practically. But this is made to build you up. I love this, he says, I will wake up the dawn. You know, the greatest Christians that I have known have been people who did wake up the dawn in the presence of their father and his son, their Lord, seeking the help of his spirit. And they did it through his word and through prayer. You will probably have as much stability this summer spiritually as your quiet time. Take the probably out of that. You know, one of the problems with being a scholar is you qualify everything. It's hard to make an honest, straightforward statement if you're a scholar. You've heard that listening to teachers. But take the probably out. You'll be as stable and secure in your spiritual life as the effectiveness of your quiet time. David, you know, there is something about us that needs daily correction. I've used this simple illustration before, but let me mention it again. When I learned to drive, I couldn't understand why I couldn't put the steering wheel in the right place and drive a straight line. Because I thought if I could get it set, you know, just right, the car would go straight. Every time I got it set, it would go either one way or the other. So you have to adjust. And to drive a straight line, you've got to keep a steering wheel moving. There is a perpetual tendency in us to go away from the straight and narrow. There must be that daily correction. There must be that sensitivity. Lord, am I in, am I in the right way? Am I pleasing you? Nothing can be more vital to you than your time in the presence of God where you find his refreshing and his renewing. All right. I dare you to wake up the dawn a few mornings. Now, the, the fourth thing. He had a faith in the purposes of God for him. I was intrigued. Dr. Rollins used in his prayer this morning the references to Joseph because I've been thinking about him all, all morning. He had that sense of destiny. And do you know I believe God wants every man, every woman, every person to have a sense of destiny. Life is a big business. You weren't put here for peanuts and for, for marbles. You were put here for things of eternal significance. And if that is true, you're supposed to be of eternal significance. But now you listen to this guy. He's not uh, giving up. You sense a sense of self-worth in him and self-importance. Importance not inherent within himself, but in his relationship to God. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusts in thee. What presumption to trust in the Lord? Why should I think the Lord's interested in me? There is a presumption in trusting in Yahweh. The God of all the earth. The psalmist says, I'm trusting in you, Lord. Now he says, in the shadow of your wings will I make my refuge. He must feel that there is an openness and a receptivity in the Lord. 
to where he can snuggle up under the shadow of his wings. What presumption? It isn't presumption. It's faith. He believes he has a right to snuggle up. Our granddaughter's just learning. She says, instead of snuggle, she says, Nuggle, Daddy. What does she want at that age, you know, to get close? Why do you want to do it? I notice it's built into some of you the desire to get close. <laughs> now, why is it built into you? This is the way a person is. And you know, all your desire at that level is really a parable of something greater in your security. The beautiful thing is his wings are open for you to not snuggle under them. Excuse me. Now, he says, I will cry unto God most high. God most high, and who is he? Unto God that performs all things for me. And the Hebrew is stronger than the English. The Hebrew says, I will cry unto God most high. Which God? The most high God, the greatest of them all. You want to talk if you want to put an S on God ever. The greatest of them all, if you're going to talk about deities. Really, there is only one. When you put an S on G-O-D, you don't have the plural of the singular. You have a different order of creatures. But he says, I will pray unto God most high, the one who completes everything for me. The Hebrew word gamar means to finish. God doesn't start something in your life to quit. Who is it? Somebody said, God don't make losers. If they're losers, something's happened somewhere if God called them. Now, here, this, this is what he is saying. I believe that God is going to finish what he started in me. Now, you, you need that and I need that. It's beautiful. You trust in God, hide under his shadow, find refuge in him. Some translate that word, gamar, even in the sense of to avenge. Is it not incredible to think that God would avenge me? That seems the utmost presumption. I don't want to translate it avenge. That offends me a bit. I'm not sure I can be that presumptuous. But I am delighted at the thought that he's going to complete what he started within me. He wants to finish this job and finish it right. Now, he will save. And the, the triumphant note is, oh yes, they dug a pit for me and they fell into it instead of the one for whom they dug it. The beautiful thing in this story, if it is from David's life, is God didn't have to knock the end of the cave out. He brought him out the opening. And he brought him out right through the 3,000 sons of the lion that were there to destroy him. And he will finish what he has started in you if you will keep your relationship to him right. I've been awed this year more than ever before, not with my commitment to God, but with his commitment to me. Why should he be committed to me? But he is. He said, I won't call you servants anymore. I'll call you friends. He said that last night before the cross. You're my friend. And he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you in our danger that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain so I could finish what I started in you. He wants to finish his work in you and me. And if we keep our relationship right, you can count on it. Now, that sense of destiny, the last, the next thing. What is his commitment? His commitment then is that he'll sing and that he will play the harp 
the lyre. What will he sing? He will sing praise to the Lord. His voice will be used in the adoration and the praise of God. Now, where will he use it? Catch this. It is astounding to me that in the Old Testament, in the 57th Psalm, and if that context is right, a thousand years before Jesus, David was envisioning the student volunteer movement and the modern missionary movement. He says, I will sing your glory among all the nations. I will sing unto thee among the nations. He said, you're great enough that every nation should know about you. There is something inherent in Old Testament faith that necessitates the modern missionary concern. We cannot leave a group of people anywhere in the world without a knowledge of the Lord. And David says, I will sing among the nations about our Redeemer, about my Redeemer. Now, it's interesting what he's going to sing about. How much should a person witness? Should you grab everybody you can by the coattails or by the lapels and choke the gospel down his neck? I remember a great Presbyterian who said this. This was his life pattern. And I do not know a better one that you can find. Charles Trumbull said, in any social contact where I have the choice of the subject of the conversation. I will speak of Jesus. In any social contact where I have the choice of the subject of the conversation, I will speak of Jesus. He commuted on the subway and train in and out of New York City every day to Presbyterian Mission Headquarters. He won scores and scores and scores of people to Christ on the train coming in and out of New York City, sitting next to a guy at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. Rule of his life, where I have the choice of the conversation, I will speak of Jesus. I dare you to take that. When I say that, I say that to myself. It's easy for us to lose our opportunities. But here he says, the nation should know. Now that's our business. Why? So that he can be exalted. You see, we're the forerunners of what is to come. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And we're like John the Baptist. We're to go before him. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And when he comes, there's supposed to be a group of people ready for him. And it is our business to tear the hills down, fill in the valleys, and make straight the ways so there will be some to receive him when he comes. And we are his forerunners in that sense. And Christ is going to reign. He is going to win. And if he's going to win, why should we have a sense of defeat and self-consciousness? This illustration and I'm through. You know, uh, you say, I'm so unimportant. We're so unimportant. You know, I've been thinking about those big ocean liners, more so used to be than now, that come in and out of New York. 
Did you know that there is no Queen Elizabeth or Queen Mary that under its own steam can birth or slip the moorings in New York City? You know how they get in and out? They use tugboats. Little things, ugly things, dumpy things, unimportant things, invisible things, boats that nobody, no captain would stand up and say, I'm the captain of tugboats. When the guy who was the captain of the Queen Elizabeth walked through, they said, he's the captain of the Queen Elizabeth. Nobody knew anything about the guy who tugged it in and out. God's looking for tugboats. I want to say something to you. Look at the Methodist church. Did you ever see anything flounder like that giant is floundering? Look at the United States. Did you ever see anything flounder like this giant is floundering? All sense of destiny gone. You know what we need? We don't need a new ship. We just need a few tugboats. Get in the right place and push. Your names will never get in the newspapers. They won't sing any elegies to you. They'll talk about the big boat. But what fun deep inside your soul to say. It was fun. God let me get it at the right place just to exert my little pressure at the right moment. And it made a difference. And it made a difference eternally. And people say, why do you hold your head up? You say, because I'm important. They say, who are you? You'll never know. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm just a child of the king doing king's business, and it's a great job and great fun. Now, that's what God wants to do with us. We keep our patterns where he lives. Very quickly, I want those who are going overseas to come stand here. Very quickly. Will you move quickly? I want Vincent Rutherford to come here. Very quickly. Everybody that doesn't have a summer job needs one to stand up. Everybody that doesn't have a summer job and you need one, stand up. Now, anybody else going overseas? You've seen who's going overseas. You see these people, they're standing. Look at them. Take a good look at how many there are. They need summer jobs. Now I want everybody who's going to be in some kind of Christian service this summer in this country. Would you stand up? The faculty at Asbury College didn't stand up. I was wondering what they were going to do this summer. I'd like for them to stand up. Because whether they're teaching history or whether you're overseas, it's Christian service. That's what it's all about. I want everybody else here. You're going to be doing some other kind of work, but you want to be a witness for Christ this summer. Will you stand up? <laughs> we have today a guest. He's really not a guest. He's part of the family who's just been away for a while in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Vincent Rutherford who has been with the United Methodist Committee on Overseas Relief, been in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, visiting here for a few days. I want him to pray for us as we go, and I want him to pray for each one of us, for these that are going overseas. How many of you that are going overseas don't have all your money yet? Would you raise your hand? Raise them high enough so we can see. Okay. That's part of the concern. 
these that don't have jobs that need them, and all of us for his grace in particular. And may God make us to be tugboats in our places this summer. It'll be fun to come back this fall and find out what he did.